Okay, well, first, uh, thank you for coming to the UA Campus Bookstore. I'm Rachel, the events coordinator. And uh, before we get going, um, a word about parking. We have free parking for all bookstore events and the parking lot in front of the bookstore. It's called the South Lot. And the parking lot behind Rasmussen Hall, so you do not have to pay the pain park. Um, if you paid, I cannot reimburse you, but next time you will remember that you do not have to pay for parking. The bookstore closes at 7 o'clock. We must be out of the front doors by 7 o'clock. Okay, so please keep that in mind. And also, we have some light refreshments, so you're welcome to take at the tables. Um, this event is being recorded, and it will be on iTunes in the UA Campus Bookstore collection. And um, you can find it under our, our uh, guest, guest artist name, or um, I'm trying to think of what collection it's going to be in. It'll probably be in the uh, uh, Expanded Minds, the um, collection, because I think this is part of Expanding Minds. So... Our event, um, artist Thomas Chung presents art and everything else. Artist Thomas Chung teaches in the art department at UAA, and at this event he discusses art, expression, and American life. Born in New Jersey and raised in Hong Kong and New York City, Thomas Chung received a Bachelor's of Fine Arts degree from the San Francisco Art Institute and a Master's of Fine Arts degree from Yale University. Having participated in numerous group and solo shows throughout the U.S., his multidisciplinary work has been written about in Art in America, The New Yorker, and Modern Painters Magazine. So um, this is a great opportunity to uh, meet Thomas Chung and to um, learn a bit more about art and um, American art today. And there'll be some time um, after the presentation for a Q&A. So we'll have that going. So again, uh, thank you all for coming. And Thomas, thank you so much for um, coming to the bookstore and talking about what matters to you. Thank you. I'm Tom Chung, and uh, today I'm going to talk to you uh, mostly about uh, my history and practice, uh, but I'm also, uh, at the end, going to talk about some of the contemporary American artists that uh, I find quite inspiring, uh, and I can talk to you about the contemporary uh, American art situation. Uh, so, um, so, this is, this is actually a painting, one of my first paintings I ever did, and I did it in high school. And art making for me uh, was catharsis more than anything else. It was uh, a literal way to save myself. I, um, I grew up in a small uh, suburban town in New Jersey, and I was the only uh, student in my elementary school that wasn't white. And it was a big uh, sort of struggle uh, dealing with this feeling of otherness and this feeling of alienation uh, where the only thing wrong with me was my race, and, uh, and it was something I couldn't help or, or fix. And, uh, and besides that, um, you know, I'm a gay man and uh, came from a really conservative family and lived in a conservative place, and uh, so these were early things that the art, when I look back on it now, was really dealing with and about, um, and, uh, and so it, it's clear sort of that was always the function. It was a way for me to express myself and a way for me to wrap my head around um, a world and possibly a culture that was inhospitable. Um, so uh, this is uh, from a series that I did in undergraduate. So uh, I made a body of work that was dealing in a genre that we call identity politics. 
Um, it's art that the identity of the maker is important in how you read the work. And so my body of work centered around uh, being a gay Asian man and what that uh, meant. And uh, this body of work was basically, uh, I was taking tropes of uh, basically the only media representation that I ever saw of Asian men was extremely negative. It was emasculated, Asian men were undesirable jokes. And I was uh, doing my thesis in undergrad uh, based on desirability and race, and um, and sort of uh, what I found, and it was in particular uh, one study by Columbia University that said that um, the Asian male in America is the least desirable category of person across the board for every gender and every race, including Asian men uh, and Asian women, and a large part of that had to do with the way that the media was portraying Asian men. Um, this, if you don't remember, was um, a contestant on that show, American Idol, and he, they picked him because he so well embodied all of the stereotypes of the Asian male as sort of this emasculated joke. Um, so what I did is I took any anywhere in the cultural consciousness that you would associate with an Asian man, and they were inherently asexual situations, and then I hypersexualized them. So this was a painting um, from a performance where I was dressed as Buddha at a strip club in San Francisco. And um, so the idea was that you have these desexualized associations with Asian men, and if you ever see one of these paintings, it's sort of scarred into your memory and overwrites that image. Um, so, I used the monk quite a lot. This is this helpful Malaysian monk. Um, this was Tiananmen Square, recreating the Vietnam War in my shower. Uh, this one I just call Asian Explosion. Because this, uh, you know, I went to undergrad in San Francisco. Uh, so, you know, I grew up in the small town in New Jersey, and uh, my mother was in advertising. There's a lot of the vocabulary of advertising in a lot of my work, um, more so now than ever. But uh, she realized that there was something happening to me and my sisters based on being in the extreme minority and her advertising agency had global offices and so when I was 11, she moved us to Hong Kong for four years and she thought that being in you know, China would help us um, sort of recover from our feelings about our own race, our own sort of self-hatred bred by the community that we grew up in. But the thing that we encountered there was a whole sort of post-colonial construct of racism where white people were essentially treated as gods. That if you were white in Hong Kong, you could have any person you wanted, you could have anything you wanted. And there was this clear racial hierarchy that was even worse than um, where I'd grown up. Um, so it, it's always been a pivotal focus. So when I got a chance to choose where I was gonna go, I chose to go to school in San Francisco. Because uh, at that point, I had sort of accepted that I was gay, and you know, to a gay teenager, it seems like the place to go. Uh, but what I encountered there is, and I did a lot of research on this, that within the gay community, there's actually an exaggerated um, racism that happens, and oftentimes other uh, forms of bigotry are more pronounced in gay people because it's a way of normalizing in terms of uh, mainstream society in all the ways that you have control over. So if you can't help that you are gay, you can choose to try to date uh, you know, the ideal American specimen, which is 
a white person. And so there was this really strange kind of um, undercurrent of rejection from the gay community uh, that I encountered there that, you know, a lot of this work is about too, um, that, you know, if you scanned any of the, uh, the internet profile ads, no Asians was, you know, on most of them. And so uh, it's a complicated thing to talk about uh, race in our country, and I really only feel comfortable talking about my own experience and the research that I've done, so. Okay, so that was that body of work. There was another tangent of my work um, that was happening around the same time, uh, and it became the focus of my graduate school studies. It was the American sort of fantasy of the Native American. So it wasn't the real life uh, realities of uh, Native Americans, it was about the, uh, the media sort of construct and that um, I felt that it embodied a place uh, in the American psyche to harbor sort of a fantasy about a closeness to nature and uh, a time when things were um, simpler or more right. This was, uh, I was painting on skins for a while, so this was from a, a charity promotional image with Susan Sarandon in Africa. Um, you know, so these works were still in undergrad now, and um, you know, along with my interest in identity, politics, and race, uh, fundamentally underneath all of my work, I believe that there is, um, it's a quest to figure out what exactly makes us human, what is fundamental, and um, you know, our biological origins, uh, that's always sort of in the back of my mind, so this was sort of this like post-coital fish embrace image. Um, this one was based on a study that um, they do with chimpanzees where they paint a dot on their forehead and if they can, they recognize that the dot is on themselves when they look in the mirror and so it's about sort of self-awareness. Uh, this is a watercolor of me shooting a bear in the face. <laughs> so, um, could yeah. you just go back? Yeah. Just, yeah. Why, why do you have the... So there's a Mondrian yeah. abstraction in the back, and so the idea is that, um, you know, if I shoot this bear, the bear's blood is going to be on the abstract painting, and that there's this uh, side of reality that's really natural and gritty. Uh, I spent uh, the majority of my teenage years in New York City, and there was something really unnatural about that to me. Um, I... Where I was in New Jersey was pretty rural, and so I spent my days in the woods with animals and um, and just exploring, and then being in New York City seemed like the most unnatural thing in the world. So that's partly why I'm here in Alaska, just because it feels really right to me to be in such a beautiful, natural place. Um, and there's this, so, um, and there's this side of our humanity um, that I think is really sort of tied in with our relationship to animals, and it can function as metaphor, but there's also something fundamental, I think, about us as people uh, in our relationships. Uh, for example, in a piece I'm working on now, um, I'm sort of tracing the roots of the our ability to dehumanize other people based on um, our ability to uh, detach ourselves from the animals that we have to hunt that might be the fundamental origin of our ability to dehumanize other people as well. 
So uh, before I went to graduate school, I lived in Virginia briefly, and I, um, I spent a few months living in the woods. I wanted to see if I could survive off the land, and um, so I did. And I was uh, in the same place where the real life Pocahontas used to live, and it was this huge stretch of woods. Um, and so I, I made some little installations, little pieces while I was there. Um, this is called Doggy Style Turtle. This is Barbra Streisand's Songbird album Turtle. I was collaging on box turtles that I caught, and then I would take a photo um, and take it off. I mean, to me, these were about something about the, the really kind of horrifying ways in which um, we're shaped culturally, that we have these raw biological origins and then there's this superficial sort of covering um, that, you know, basically environment that shapes who we are as people in ways that maybe are artificial or, um, in my case, they're extremely self-harming. I grew up in a society that said it was, you know, not okay to be gay and it was not okay to be Asian, that those were things that I should load about myself. Um, so that's why, that's what these pieces were sort of about. Every time I ran into a hunting platform, I collaged my images on those just as a little joke. <laughs> so um, I ended up getting into graduate school at Yale University um, when I finished undergrad. So after I spent some time in the woods, I ended up there. And uh, I was making pieces about uh, dehumanization, and uh, my the main motif that I used to talk about that was starving Ethiopian kids. That growing up in the 90s, there was this proliferation of these um, images, these horrifying images of um, starving Ethiopian children, and there I, I felt that we'd become desensitized to these images. And so I was bringing them up to talk about that desensitization. Uh, something kind of interesting happened in graduate school uh, because my undergrad was extremely open-minded that the professors there, the community there, were always willing to hear your point of view. Um, at Yale, I encountered an extremely closed down, very politically correct environment where um, I think the first professor to come into my studio to see this painting told me that uh, I could be the first non-white member of the KKK. And uh, with just no willingness to hear my point of view. And so I ended up making a lot of my work in retaliation against that climate. I spent most of my artistic career uh, battling with what I call, you know, I guess, you know, PC police or the, you know, very liberal people that, you know, don't want to hear about race or things that are hard to hear because just the mention of them is, you know, not acceptable. Um, so I pushed that a lot. And the, a lot of the, my investigation into that fantasy of native life was um, in retaliation uh, to their closed-mindedness. Uh, I, I felt I was talking about something quite real uh, and they, they weren't hearing me. Uh, so these are prints that I did. Uh, this was uh, still from a performance. And uh, when I was uh, in graduate school, I got a chance to do a few performances uh, around New York City at that time. That's where most of the major press about my work comes from. Uh, I had an opportunity. Um, and as you guys will see, the, my painted work, it's quite performative to me. 
the figures are always life-size and scale, and they sort of interact with the viewer um, by entering their world and through scale. Uh, this is a photo of me eating a wasp. This is me giving birth to a white-faced baby. Uh, this, I started making these stained glass windows when I was in grad school. So this was from an image of a creature in Papua New Guinea with this like very Aryan Brad Pitt Jesus image. Um, and uh, so I actually, I have a background in art and also anthropology. And so when I was in graduate school, I was awarded a grant to go down to the Amazon basin. My, um, my dissertation was about uh, really triangulating human nature by trying to find people that were as far from the Western world as I could possibly get. I had already lived, um, you know, in rural New Jersey and Hong Kong, and there was this um, pervasive sense that I couldn't escape um, what felt fundamentally like the same uh, forces that were breeding you know, my own self-hatred and also a lot of sort of feelings of alienation within people. So um, I went down to the Amazon Basin and made contact with um, some tribes uh, that had either never encountered someone outside of their own village or, um, you know, the contact was many years ago, maybe with missionaries 20 years ago in some cases. Uh, this is me uh, with the Ashaninka. They are a tribe that uh, has really interesting tradition of painting their faces uh, when they wake up in the morning uh, based on how they feel. So. It's literally painted on your face if you're having a bad day when you get up, or if you're, you know, feeling amorous or or whatnot. And uh, and this was the tribe that um, most of these people that I encountered had never met someone outside the Western world. So um, I conducted uh, field research where I was talking with them about you know their core values and uh, who what they found beautiful about other people. It was quite informal. Um, but the aim was to sort of triangulate human nature, that similarities I could draw within um, our own culture and theirs might give me clues about you know, what fundamentally makes us human, you know, what's the same across the board. Um, so uh, in, during that trip, uh, I ended up on the island of Iquitos, uh, where there is the tribe, the Shibibo, and their whole uh, religion is uh, based on the hallucinogenic rainforest plants um, brewed together. It's called ayahuasca, and uh, I got to one particular village, and the you know it's like it took like a five-hour canoe ride. It's the middle of nowhere, and uh, when I got to the shaman, I was there with my translator, and you know I told uh, the shaman of the village that I wanted to ask him a few questions um, while I was there, and he said that everybody that comes to him needs his help and that he could fix me. <laughs> and so um, basically, while I was in this village, the shaman forced me to eat hallucinogenic rainforest plants for two weeks straight every day. And um, it, as you can see, it's in a Coca-Cola bottle, <laughs> if you can't see behind. Um, but they, they brew this huge amount of plants and it gets condensed down into a little Coca-Cola bottle. Um, so this is some of their textiles. And they have a really interesting visual language. All of their patterns and all of their art is based on the visual hallucinations uh, while they're um, after they've taken the ayahuasca, and uh, and it's really interesting because if you ever take ayahuasca, you basically you see these patterns. They're really perfect likenesses. And um, there's another really interesting thing about the Shibibo. Uh, their visual language perfectly corresponds to sound, 
And so I watched these two women painting this giant ceramic vessel from opposite sides. And it was so big they couldn't see each other on either sides. And one of them was singing a song. And when they finished, it was perfectly symmetrical where they met in the middle because every note she sang had a corresponding instruction. Each, each note meant, you know, make a short dash left or go down. And so they met at the center and it was this really interesting um, example that I always talk to my students about, um, about the different ways in which art manifests and the, the different ways visual language um, can have meaning and significance in our lives. Because it's, it's totally unlike anything we have in the West, I think. So anyway, uh, the first night I was there at that village, um, I was given the hallucinogenic rainforest plants. I thought I was gonna die. I couldn't breathe. I thought I was turning into an eagle and that my jaw was being ripped off. And the shaman is there blowing smoke in my face and singing. And um, to the Shibibo, the visions that you have in the rainforest are extremely secret and very significant. And this figure starts to emerge in between me and the shaman. And it's this hallucination, it's this vision. And it is Angelina Jolie from the 1995 movie <laughs> Girl Interrupted. And she looks at me with a sexy, knowing, and very strong Angelina Jolie smirk. And I felt instantly better. And I remember sitting there <laughs> in, you know, in the middle of the rainforest. And I remember sitting there laughing and thinking, you know, had I grown up in this village, I would have had a vision of the Star Twins or you know, the great cosmic serpent. But because I grew up in rural New Jersey, it's Angelina Jolie from her 90s movie. And, uh, and this revelation hit me um, that was, you know, we may think that in our modern American lives that we've lost touch with what's really important, but I firmly believe that everything that's important has a way of continuing. It just wears different masks. It just has different forms. That there's, you know, there's no difference between Angelina Jolie appearing as my, I don't know, power animal or, or guardian spirit than if it was one of the mythical figures from the Shpipo. Um, that there was nothing wrong uh, and nothing different. And there was something comforting about that, and that's what I ended up basing uh, my dissertation and my thesis exhibition at graduate school about. That was the fundamental idea. And um, so these are just more images. Uh, this was a bracelet that was made for me while I was down there that uh, I figured out how to recreate when I came back. Um, this is the one on the right, it's the one that I, I wore. Um, so when I came back from my field work, uh, I had the opportunity to, to do a performance in New York City. Um, and I guess it's interesting because I, um, my, my family, uh, my mother's side uh, in China, you know, I'm a fourth generation American. My mom had to learn Chinese in college, but I'm told that uh, my ancestors on her side, they were oracles in China. They threw bones into fire and read the cracks um, and told the future. And um, that same shaman um, that I was telling you guys about, uh, the first day he said that, you know, you, that I have, you know, a healer's blood in me. And, and he said it's for my mother, and he could see it, and so he taught me some things when I was down there, different songs and different rituals. So when I got back to New York, um, I did a performance where I uh, enacted some of the songs and sang some of the songs that he had taught me, um, and also played with a lot of um, these sort of new age cliches uh, that are tied up with spirituality also. Um, those are breathing fire, I'm being wrapped in an anaconda skin that was given to me. 
Um, and then when the skin was unwrapped, I was holding a knife and I had made this goose foot sculpture that was brought to me. And when it was lifted, there was a lit candle and a cheesecake. And so then everybody at the um, gallery got to eat some free cheesecake. <laughs> Those are actually my parents. <laughs> um, so uh, there's, uh, so, you know, that, that was sort of the fundamental um, core of my work around that time. Uh, these are different tribal necklaces that I recreated out of painkillers. So the one on the right is the uh, Lethal Joseph Advil for a Suicide uh, as a bridal necklace that they give um, in the Ashtonika give. Um, this is the Shroud of Turin printed on a rug by CVS. Um, this was a, a seed bead piece that I made. Uh, I translated every pixel of pornographic image into seed beads. Um, I tried to weave this Cheeto bag and stopped at Chester Cheetah because it was too complicated. Uh, and then, so this is an image from my thesis exhibition. So um, I created uh, in the gallery space this kind of tongue-in-cheek museum diorama that was filled with um, all the various hallucinations that I had while I was doing field work. And I made these animatronic sculptures um, that would greet you when you walked by. They all had motion sensors. They would say, like, welcome to Tom Chung's thesis village. Take a brochure. Um, and I also, uh, so I made stained glass windows that were all about the superficial cultural coverings and the different ways that they manifest. It was interesting from outside, they looked like billboards. Uh, and then these were prints that I made um, that were literal representations of the uh, different visions that I had had. At my, uh, at my thesis review, I was told they looked like uh, images that should be in a Thai restaurant somewhere. <laughs> And I have these little chicken footballs, because everywhere I went in the Amazon, there were chickens everywhere. So I made these strange chicken skin football sculptures. There was a, a wigwam that I had built, and uh, inside there was a video loop um, with three just horrifying examples, I think, of our contemporary culture. There was uh, a clip from Girls Gone Wild, Zero Gravity Jugs, uh, that played, and then there was some really blatant product placement, and, uh, and a clip from Paris Hilton's TV show where she has the world's biggest cupcake built and then sends 20 teenagers to explode it and just dig through it. Um, this was the gift shop section of my dissertation. I had all of these objects uh, with the images of the work made for sale. Um, this kind of horrifying realization happened when I was in graduate school. I've always been really idealistic about art um, as, you know, because it was so personally meaningful to me. And I realized in graduate school that I was being groomed for a commodities market in New York City. And so uh, my work towards the end of it, um, there were replications of um, crafts that were made for tourists in Mexico and things like that, because that's how I ended up feeling at the end of the program that I felt really sort of disillusioned that um, the work itself didn't even matter, that if you were able to make a brand for yourself and if you were able to get into a good gallery, that that was um, all that was important. That's also why I'm here.
so that uh, one of those prints I had made into a shower curtain. Uh, this was a drum I built. I've been making drums my whole life. Um, and uh, this, I had a dream once that said we're just the air between two sides of a drum being played. And so I built a drum that I could play from inside. So um, at the opening of my thesis exhibition, I was inside the drum playing it. And so the viewers could uh, play the drum and I would play back. It's based on the Japanese taiko drum. That was the sort of architecture of this thing, the giant taiko drum. Uh, so after graduate school, I moved to Hawaii, where my family uh, is all now. And so uh, I just I have a couple images. I mean, my work is always kind of amusing, I guess, to me. As as heavy-handed as some of the things I'm thinking about are, um, you know, I, I find a lot of humor in it. This is a man making out with a shark, and he has a Confederate flag tattoo. Um, this is based on the time I tried to hunt carp with a ski pole. And, uh, and you see Cheetos featured in a lot of my work, and uh, at the time, and I guess I still think about it, I was grappling with the idea that either everything is sacred or nothing is, and so I, the most unsacred thing I could possibly think of is Cheetos, and so I include them um, to sort of talk about that, uh, that duality, of the, you know, the sacred and the profane. This was a, um, this is a relic from a performance. This is an antique Japanese silk kimono that I lined with uh, 200 taxidermy jellyfish. I was getting stung every day by these jellyfish, and so um, after a storm, I gathered them all up off of the beach uh, and made this sculpture. And so I wore it uh, for a video. Uh, this is a mural I have in Honolulu. Um, it's called Remember What Happened to Captain Cook because the natives ate him. And um, that there's a little pyramid um, there that's sort of like the Pink Floyd pyramid, but it's, um, <laughs> it's uh, actually, when I was doing um, my graduate research, I came across this really strange diagram of the uh, hierarchy of racial privilege. And so at the top you have white, and then you have mixed white, and then uh, Asian is underneath that. Latino and black are on equal footing, and the native is at the very bottom. Uh, and so it was talking about who's allowed to appropriate from whom. Um, and then also uh, there's text at the top. There's this bumper sticker in Hawaii that's, uh, he is greater than I, and it's talking about God. And so I um, changed it to an equal sign. And there's the world's best dad who's also a fish. Um, I did a series of drawings. There's a plant in Hawaii called the autograph tree, and if you scratch it, it changes colors. And so um, I printed, I drew on the Jägermeister logo and a few different uh, religious symbols uh, on those leaves as, as pieces. Uh, so then I moved to Alaska. Uh, I and, uh, uh, you know, just was kind of dallying with some of my little projects. I was making more drums. Um, this is a ceramic sculpture I made. Um, still very much thinking about, um, you know, this fantasy of native life. Um, but then the interesting thing about living in Alaska is, you know, we have such a large uh, native population, and it's something new to me, uh, and it's been really quite enlightening to um, extend my research out now to be engaging with the Alaska Native community. I've been traveling around uh, the state since I got here. I won a Rasmussen grant to go uh, travel to different villages. So this year, um, 
I went up to Wainwright uh, and got to see Nalikatuk, um, which is the whale festival, and um, I'll be going to Point Hope soon to, to watch the actual whale butchering. And, um, anyway, so this is another relic from a performance. It's a crystallized uh, stag skull. So, you know, a lot of the images that I've been making since I moved to Alaska, they deal uh, with uh, animals and, uh, you know, because I find it quite inspiring, but I also think that they serve as really nice sort of metaphors for our own, uh, our own selves. Um, I had a series of work for a show outside of LA, and they were all black and white paintings uh, based on uh, vintage native portraits that I come across. Um, based on a story when I first moved to Alaska four years ago, a Yupik friend of mine, I asked her, what am I supposed to do if I run into a bear? And she said, if you're a woman, you're supposed to flash it. And that's <laughs> uh, an old sort of Yupik adage. Um, and so I, I uh, painted it. So she's subduing the bear. I mean, to me, this is one of my favorite pieces just because it's this metaphor to me about um, being vulnerable in the face of great fear. Um, and that's actually the way to sort of tame the beast to just stop running and face it. This I made after I, I found out that the eagles like to hang out at the dump here. And uh, I wanted to do a full-scale painting of my car. Um, it's a super old Jeep, and so it's me hitting a caribou. Melting a glacier. So um, the exhibition, I stretched all the paintings. They weren't stretched on um, frames. They were stretched like how I stretch animal hide up here when I make a drum. Uh, this is an image. I actually, uh, since I've been at UA, I've um, taken two classes with Alaska Native Studies uh, in Native Arts. And uh, there was this one course, and it was clinket drum making. And we spent the whole semester skidding a moose and tanning the hide every day we'd come in and pull out the hair and i think that some of the things that ua has it's unlike anything else in any other college like it was the most amazing experience um, so we stretched these moose hides um, and uh, and this is the drum that i made uh, after with that hide uh, in that class uh, i taught myself scrimshaw while i was up here and uh, Scrimshaw is a really interesting art form because it's considered by some to be the only uh, art form started by America, um, but it's actually, so by the sailors in the 1800s, um, they, they were on whaling ships, the American sailors were on whaling ships and they had all the spare time so it was really dangerous being on those boats. And so they um, would make Scrimshaw, they'd scratch into the whale bones that they had in ample supply and then they would fill it with soot or ink. Um, and uh, so it's considered, you know, the only art form that originated in America, but actually many scholars think that it was their interactions with uh, the Alaska Native people and other indigenous people in the Arctic that were already doing something quite similar in their own cultures, that is the origin. Uh, it's something I do with a lot of my classes at UAA, actually, it's a scrimshaw lesson. So this is the Jägermeister logo, uh, Warris Tooth, 
um, this is the gayest piece of scripture, I think, in the history of man. It's um, a pinup of a guy with a Confederate flag to the Confederate flag tattoo on a sperm whale team. Watercolor. This piece is called uh, Mother Nature Does Not Love You, and the title comes from uh, when I was in school, I had to hear the OSHA woman who comes to talk about health and safety at the art schools, and I had to hear her multiple times, and she always had the same like really great line in it that uh, she said that any cleaner made from oranges will kill you faster than anything chemical, and she, then she says to you know underline that Mother Nature Does Not Love You. <laughs> and. Um, so this piece is kind of tongue-in-cheek. I put Mother Nature Does Not Love You into Google Translate because I don't speak Chinese or know how to write it. Um, and that's what it says at the top, a really bad Google translation of it. And then, um, you know, one of the things that I really love about living in Alaska is um, our connectedness to the natural world. That, um, you know, when I'm out in villages, I have to watch my back for a polar bear or, um, you know, that... I actually feel this sense of interconnectedness from that fear um, because in New York it's not like that at all. It's totally artificial. So you know, with that danger, it's sort of like encountering the sublime and just being part of something. Uh, this is a book cover I made for a local Alaskan author called Zombie, and the book is called Zombie Alaska. Um, and every once in a while, I, I make little sculptures. Painting is my primary um, interest, and then. But I kind of dabble in everything, as you guys have kind of seen. Um, so uh, these next two images are just from some of my travels to um, the North Slope so far and other places. This is in Wainwright. And, uh, and from, from my travels, uh, I've been illustrating some uh, scenes, uh, native stories. Um, this one. Uh, the image on the left of the hand is um, mouse food. If anyone's heard of mouse food, it's uh, different groups in Alaska eat mouse food, but I heard it from someone that was Yupik that uh, it's a delicacy to find the cache of uh, tundra, um, tundra mouse, and to they'll take it, uh, all the little bits of seeds and grasses that the mouse has collected, and then they'll leave um, uh, a piece of salmon or something in exchange, and it's actually quite a delicacy. So that's an illustration of that. Uh, the center one is actually another Yupik tradition uh, where hunters will drop water from their mouths into the, a dead seal's mouth. And then the third is from an Aleut friend of mine um, who woke up once um, down in Sitka with a, a raven that could speak English um, on her chest. So. Uh, and then there was a little series I made comparing my boyfriend to Alaskan animals. And uh, so I guess we're, we're getting to the end of my slides. So I have a show, a solo exhibition coming up uh, in May at the Anchorage Museum. And uh, so the last show, the last major show I had, it was all black and white images, so I've returned to color. And this show has to deal with cross-cultural archetypes. And so um, I, uh, so I guess I'll like talk about these ones. And so these are all images, pieces that will be in that show. Uh, this is an interesting painting. Um, a friend of mine who I actually apprenticed with to, to learn how to tattoo many years ago from him, he asked me for a wedding portrait of him and his wife, and they live in the South now. Um, and uh, my friend Mitchell, who's in the painting, 
all he said is he wanted a lynching in there, in the uh, in the wedding portrait. And so that's what's behind him. So it's me comparing different cultural sort of icons and figures um, on the left and the right side of the painting, and it's all organized with the the, the um, one of the Buddhist symbols for for love. And they're sitting on the Confederate flag. Um, my friend Mitchell at Halloween dresses up as a character called Super Coon. He wears the Confederate flag as a cape and has a noose around his neck and terrorizes Honolulu. And uh, you know, it's, I was speaking with you guys earlier about um, self-hatred, American self-hatred being of great interest to me. And um, what he does actually, I see it as a really sort of empowering kind of taking of these symbols, um, but it, it just demonstrates his really complicated relationship to his own race. Uh, this was uh, the mother archetypes from different uh, different uh, cultures, and it ended up being more personal, personal narrative. Uh, but it's Angelina Jolie breastfeeding a starving Ethiopian baby and a pig, and then her own baby is being left to those wolves. And uh, the in many images of the equivalent, the Chinese uh, mother goddess Huan Yin, um, she's pouring water from a vase, and so Angelina Jolie is pouring a Coca Cola. Baby. Uh, this is actually over uh, at the art gallery next to the library. This was uh, the trickster archetype. Um, and the trickster archetype was a personally meaningful one to myself. Um, I had a hard time grounding my identity in anything. I think that that's a big reason why I put myself in the work, just to have something sort of tangible about myself. Um, but uh, I was seeing a Jungian therapist when I was undergrad, and he um, tethered me with my, my personality to the trickster archetype. And I grew up uh, going to powwows and reading stories about the coyote as a trickster figure. Uh, so in this image, uh, there is uh, a rattlesnake being milked of its venom, and that is a nod to uh, the Norse god, trickster god Loki, who is supposed to be doomed for all of eternity with a venomous snake dropping venom on him, and his wife has to hold a bowl to stop it from hitting his head. Um, the image was originally just supposed to be this forest fire, um, and it was supposed to be this fake American Spirits cigarette ad, because American Spirits cigarettes, they're made by Camel, they pretend that they're all natural, but they actually soak them in chemical nicotine, and they have a higher nicotine content than any cigarette on the market, and, um, you know, Mother is in advertising. Um, and so, and then it's also not to the Marlboro ads, and uh, so I'm laying this cigarette for Coyote, and. Uh, I ended up getting quite bored with the image, so I rigged a camera. It was so large that I had to work on it on my floor. So uh, the secondary image uh, is I took a photo of myself working on the painting and all this debris that had accumulated on it, and that became sort of breaking the fourth wall and this extra layer of space in the piece. So that's a close-up. Uh, and then the most recent painting that I finished, uh, it's called Indra's Net and it's an accumulation of uh, different images. The idea in Hindu uh, religion of Indra's net is that all reality is just this net of uh, interwoven gems that all reflect uh, all the other gems inside themselves and then are reflected in all the other gems. And so I was comparing really disparate images. There's an image of Kim Kardashian with her baby at the top, and then there's um, a, a monk from Thailand from one of those tiger temples that um, where the monks raised these tigers and then ended up being busted for trafficking tiger parts to the Chinese medicine market. 
Um, there's an Alaskan fisherman uh, image at the bottom right, and then a Japanese businessman committing suicide. And then the dream catcher, you know, I'm really aware of issues of cultural appropriation uh, in my work and uh, just in general. Um, it was a huge focus of graduate school and continues to be. The dream catcher that is sort of the structure of the piece is from a Stephen King movie poster from his movie Dreamcatcher. And so, you know, um, so that's where it's pulled. And uh, it can be really tricky uh, venturing into territory that might be deemed cultural appropriation. But I think that the conversation's worth having. Um, that I worry, and the kind of restrictive climate that I was encountering uh, at Yale in graduate school, where all conversations about race and culture were closed down, um, seemed really oppressive and um, just incredibly wrong to not even engage or ask, you know, you know, who are you offending? Why? You know, what is the right way to go about, um, you know, borrowing? Because if these conversations about race and culture get closed down, then it's just, it's one directional. Then it's just mainstream culture kind of inserting itself into everybody else uh, with no exchange back because of fear of, um, fear of it being inappropriate. So, um, so it's something I still kind of push. So there's this uh, breaking the fourth wall again uh, in this portrait, and uh, with my black eye. So, um, I, I'll talk briefly about um, the painting I had uh, that, that got some attention last year. This is from Fox News. Um, so this was a painting, and it was supposed to be for the Anchorage Museum show. It was supposed to be the hero archetype, and my work, I really don't constrain it very much to my original idea, and, um, and I'll tell you a little bit about sort of why I painted this. Um, I, I've been living in Anchorage for the last four years, and I've really never felt more included anywhere else in my life. I mean, we live in such a diverse, friendly place, um, and... My concerns about racism and my concerns about homophobia have been a non-issue here. Um, during the uh, 2016 presidential election campaign, I feel like um, all of these fears that I have about our culture having these problems um, became forefront of mind again. And then, you know, with the kinds of things that were being said, and accepted and supported by so many people, I was really horrified. I mean, um, so I'm not a political person at all. All of the work that you've seen, it deals in culture. That election led into mainstream culture in a significant way. And so I'm an artist that does deal in culture. Um, when uh, President Trump was elected, um, it felt like my bubble had been popped, that I thought we had come really far as a culture in terms of racism and misogyny and homophobia and bigotry. And the fact that all of those things he said, sort of exploiting those aspects of our culture and then to have him be elected and to find out that so many people also hold those values or don't care, uh, was devastating to me. Um, I had no idea because things have been so good and in my personal life I haven't had to deal with those issues in a very long time. Um, and so that's why I was upset. When the, uh, the local newspaper covered this painting, um, they asked me about why I painted it and I, 
and I told them that, I said, I had been weeping for days because my faith in humankind had been shaken, um, and it was edited to make me sound like really snowflakey, um, but, uh, but that, that was why I painted this. So the image is pulled from uh, a statue mostly of Perseus and Medusa, and I chose that because I used Trump's head in the place of Perseus holding Medusa's head, because Medusa is this Greek monster who, if she looks at you, you turn to stone, and Perseus ended up using the head as a weapon. Um, that if you looked at the head, it would, um, it would kill you with its gaze, and I thought that was an apt metaphor for all the things that he was reflecting back about our culture, and that's why I used it. And um, I have a young Hillary Clinton clinging to the hero's leg. The hero is uh, the actor that portrays Captain America, and, um, and I included that just because uh, I was thinking that underneath everything with Hillary, you know, it's still a woman that has, you know, broken dreams and just the weak way that uh, women were being portrayed, the backwards way they were being portrayed. Um, it's just, that was a nod to images of a helpless princess that you know, I thought we had come really far in our um, notions of, um, you know, what it means to be a powerful woman or even a woman at all, and it just uh, seemed really backwards to me. So uh, in the image, it's two eagles fighting behind the hero, and um, I haven't gone to any protests, political protests, and uh, so I wanted to include a protest sign in the piece, and so the quote is from Chief Seattle, and it says, man did not weave the web of life, he's merely a strand in it. Whatever he does to the web, he does to himself. And I just thought to myself, if I had a sign and um, the president would read it, what would I want him to hear from me? And I would just want him to understand that, you know, all actions have consequences. And I don't mean that sort of as a threat. I just mean that the kind of things you can say, uh, they wield a certain power, they have a certain cultural effect. Um, and uh, so there's a dead buffalo in the painting, and it's been graffitied, uh, Make America White Again, which is something that people were graffitiing around our country after Trump was elected. Um, and then on the other side of the painting, it's a buffalo fall. It's a way in which buffalo were hunted um, by Plains Indians, uh, that they would herd them off of a cliff. Um, but it's also just a nod to the fact that our country is founded on genocide. Um, that's an aspect of our history that's very real and present uh, when I think about our country and our history, too. So that's just a little bit about what I was thinking. Um, the reception to the painting, it got covered by the local newspaper and then started spreading uh, in April last year. Uh, I ended up with uh, probably over a thousand uh, death threats through email and my office phone because all of that information was accessible online. It was only very conservative uh, right-wing news outlets that were interested in sensationalizing the fact that this painting had gone up uh, at a university. Um, and, uh, you know, I did, I, I thought about before putting it up uh, at school. It was shown in a faculty show um, last year. And the reason why I ultimately put it up is I decided that um, I would never want my students to hold back uh, in terms of what they wanted to express, if they had something to say. And so, um, you know, it was my, not my intention to make anyone feel uncomfortable. The interesting thing is, um, our art students um, 
every once in a while there's political work and it mostly comes from my classes and it's mostly very conservative. That all the political work that's come out of my class has either been about um, you know, pro-life, I've even had pieces that were anti-gay marriage come out of my classes and a lot of pieces that uh, painted Obama in a very negative light. And I've been supportive to those students because it isn't my job to um, push my values on them. And I help them make the best anti-gay marriage pieces they possibly could. Um, and so, you know, I chose to put it up because I wouldn't ever want them to censor themselves. Um, so the show was up for a month, nothing happened. The day before it was supposed to come down, the local newspaper called me to talk about it, and that's when it sort of skyrocketed. Um, I was really proud of our university for standing by free speech. Um, a couple messages went out from, uh, from the top in support of free speech, and that the fact that a university is the setting to have these conversations, to talk about our differences, that, um, and uh, so, I exhibited it again um, without North downtown, and uh, this time the piece was uh, it was shown behind many of the death threats that I had gotten. Um, we reprinted them, and that's what you had to walk through. Ninety percent of the messages just called me a chanker or faggot, um, and I remember I, I actually I had to read through them all. I had to listen to them all because I had to pick out any that were direct, I'm coming to kill you now threats. And so I would wait until I was in a mindset where I could have a sense of humor about this or not feel so vulnerable and I'd read them. I remember reading one and all it said was, fuck you, ching chong chink. And I remember that is exactly word for word what a child said to me in elementary school. And something clicked in my head that told me that the same reason why a child would say that to me in elementary school is the same reason why someone is saying that to me now. Um, and that these things you know, aren't dead, and that um, it was reassuring. It's like, I don't even blame these people for being so angry at me. Um, I think that you know, there's aspects of our culture that allow us to disengage, that allow us to dehumanize someone um, to the point of violence. So that is um, my work. Um, the piece was supposed to go up in the Anchorage Museum, but the Anchorage Museum will not exhibit it. Um, and uh, so, I mean, I have, I have other images. Well, let me play my video. But That's where, where is it right now? Right now, it is in my studio. Huh. Someone came, um, someone came after the show had been taken down uh, with an American flag and a staple gun. Uh, ended up harassing some of our professors and trying to destroy it, but it was, it, it was ultimately never, never destroyed. Is, is it in the right plug-in? I think so. Oh. Yeah, so this is a video that I made as uh, my final uh, message to the faculty at Yale. Um, so I'll play this for you now. I know it's loud enough. Uh, you could do electricity, a countless multiplicity. Now don't let liberal guilt make you ashamed. You can enjoy things in another's world, but keep it in your private world. Because there's a chance that someone might tell you it's not okay. Now let me go over what is okay. Anything considered white people clothes is okay for all ethnicities. That includes your Asians in Abercrombie and Fitch, black people in polo, and really any other mainstream clothes. 
If you really want to wear a foreign culture's clothing, do so in sparing moderation. Anything more than a cute multicultural accent piece and people will expect you to explain yourself. We're a rainbow of ethnicity, a countless multiplicity. Now don't let liberal guilt make you ashamed. You can enjoy things in another's world, but keep it in your private world, because there's a chance that someone might say it's not okay. Now let's go for what else is okay. Dun, dun, dun. Anything related to your own ethnicity gives you considerable freedom, since it's your right. Well, Asian penises are so small. Now you say it. Just kidding, you can't. Racial ambiguity allows for slightly more leeway to publicly enjoy another culture, since no one can be sure if it's your right or not. If you were one type of Asian, you could adopt any other form of Asian-adjacent culture, as long as you've got slanty eyes and they've got slanty eyes. Actually, anyone can wear an Asian costume, because my people are so polite. Even a chinky rice picker hat is okay for a white tourist. My people might even compliment it. I love your chinky hat. It in no way is comparable to blackface. Thanks. Oh, we're a rainbow of ethnicity, a countless multiplicity. Now don't let liberal guilt make you ashamed. You can enjoy things in another's world, but keep it in your private world, because there's a chance that someone might tell you it's not okay. Now let's go over your no-no area. Wearing a Native American war on it, is a definite no-no. By wearing one, you are misappropriating a culturally important object, reducing a living and diverse people to a one-dimensional fantasy, and carrying on a cruel and violent colonial history. Now, wearing a feather in your hair is also inappropriate for the same reasons. I'm looking at you, hipsters. Their blood is on your hands. Any costume associated with white people is acceptable even if you're an ethnicity that makes you look anachronistically displaced in it. Top of the morning, Gagna! All cowboy costumes are acceptable. <laughs> if you really want to dress up as another culture but are afraid of being arrested by the PC police, do it in drag. Changing your race and gender will confuse the PC police enough that they'll be too scared to even think that what you're doing is inappropriate. <laughs> the more marginalized you are, the more you can get away with. Transsexual, wear a war bonnet. Transsexual and in a wheelchair, do it in blackface. Oh, we're a rainbow of ethnicity, a countless multiplicity. Now don't let liberal guilt make you ashamed. You can enjoy things in another's world, but keep it in your private world, because there's a chance that someone might say it's not okay. Now, even though we come across hundreds of different cultures on the internet and TV, most of that culture is to be kept at arm's length. Look, but don't touch, just to be safe. They're not you, so you have no right. Remember, aspiring to be white is always okay. It's your safest bet. <laughs> Countless multiplicity. Now don't let liberal guilt make you ashamed. You can enjoy things in another's world, but keep it in your private world, because there's a chance that some might say it's not okay. Um, so I guess I can take questions now. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs>
the lights on, okay? Anyone has any questions? Thank you. Yes, If you ask me if I've ever considered North Korea as a potential stop. Nope. Thought never crossed my mind. I'm interested, uh, you know, in in our American culture and Western culture. Oh, I thought you were Stag skull piece? Yes. Oh, that was, yeah, it was just a relic from a performance. Oh, so it was, okay. it was an object that I wore. I find that um, some of my favorite objects are relics from performances because they kind of carry a certain energy from that, um, from that event. Uh, but the basic question I have is when do you sleep? I have never seen anyone <laughs> such a production. Well, I paint fast. I don't think I'm the best painter, but I paint fast. So I've always prided myself on that. Um, could you say some more about how you, um, from the from when you start a piece of artwork, like how do you know what you're going to use, or how do you design it? Like how just the process, or do you let yeah. that it sit for a while? How does it evolve? Um, usually, uh, an idea will pop into my head. Oftentimes, a certain medium will suggest itself as the best vehicle for that idea. Um, and uh, I think I was telling you just a little bit ago that. Um, some of the pieces that I find most boring are the ones that uh, did exactly what I thought they were going to do from the very beginning. But oftentimes the work has sort of a life of its own, and I let a lot of um, subconscious uh, decisions happen. Um, and uh, yeah, so a lot comes through. I mean, I guess I, I think it's clear in a lot of the work. I mine a lot of my own. Um, the things that I think are wrong about the way that I think. Um, in the work, and I let that come out. So I always let a lot of subconscious uh, things shape the piece. Yeah. Oftentimes, I won't even know why I'm making something when I'm making it until much later. Do you have a lot of dreams when you're painting? Dreams? Yeah. Yeah. Just kind of, yeah a lot just of the work is full of dreams. Yeah. And what's your process? Do you start with an idea and sketch it out, or? Um, I. If it's a painting, I usually do a rudimentary, it looks like a three-year-old did it, of just a little mock-up. Um, and then uh, oftentimes I'll um, then arrange things digitally. Um, I, I use Photoshop as a tool. I don't project anything for paintings. I, uh, I basically freehand and then I'll, I'll, I'll put a photograph of the painting in progress uh, into um, into Photoshop and overlay it to see where it's off until things get refined. And that also lets me play around with scale and um, and, and other things, what I might like to include. Um, you know, so I talked about additional elements coming into a lot of these pieces, and, uh, and so that'll happen, uh, you know, that'll happen on the fly. So then I'll take a photo of the painting in progress, overlay the new images in it, and arrange them and figure out, and then those get painted in. And how long were you in the Amazon? Uh, I was there for about a month and a half. Yes. 
Yeah, so I have a solo exhibition at the Anchorage Museum that's opening in May, and so all the paintings deal in um, cross-cultural archetypes. The last paintings that I showed are all for, the, for that show. Do you have more political messages? Like clearer political okay, so, images. <laughs> um, the, I do have a political piece for the Anchorage Museum show, and um, and it's an image of President Trump as the Christian God being held up by these cherubs with racist character faces. Because I think that that gets at the core. That what was most horrifying for me um, is just the the continuation of racism in this country, and also just. Um, the dehumanization of people, marginalized people, and so that that's my big issue. So I don't think the other painting got that across. So that's a, that's a motif that's happening. Um, but like I said, the only reason why the work has gotten political is just because it's reached into culture. That culture is my main interest. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I have a question. Yeah. Explanations, uh, your commentary on some of your paintings. Uh, I've looked at the paintings I didn't catch them, and, mm -hmm. and then when you explained things, uh, uh, there was a lot more that you saw than in it. Uh, how much do you put them by way of explanation? Could you um, repeat the question so that I could hear okay. He's saying that when I talk about the pieces, there's a lot more there that you might get from just looking at the image. He's asking if there's ever supplemental information that accompanies a piece. Um, usually not. Um, I mean, it's a good idea. It's maybe something I'll consider for the Anchorage Museum show because I am sort of pulling from so many different places. Um, I mean, I a way that I think about my work is that it, it seems kind of easy to understand when you first glance at it, and then there's there's more. Um, but open-ended work, it's something I always tell my students that you know, open-ended work is oftentimes the most powerful because the viewer gets to insert themselves into the narrative and weave whatever meaning is um, you know, their own that they can pull from it. Because I'm pulling from things that I think are true uh, from, from my own life, uh, but if I don't, if I tie it down, then I don't know if it leaves that space for a viewer to have their own sort of understanding and relationship and reflection. They function a lot as just mirrors, art as sort of mirrors to the viewer. Yeah. Well, for instance, your chin paintings. On that note, I, is it ever a topic of discussion amongst artists as to whether or not you do explain your work? I had a friend who had a sculpture hanging down in the Pratt Museum, and I kept asking him, what are you trying to tell us? Mm -hmm. He refused. He's like, no, you figure it out. It's what it is to you. And so he refuses to ever describe anything. I just wonder if that's something you guys think about, professional artists. Yeah, I think it's a case-by-case -case basis. I mean, I, I like talking about my work. I give, I give lectures every now and then, talking about my practice. And um, uh, I've always enjoyed hearing from my artists what they have to say. Um, but... I think for the same reason, just of, of not tying it down too much, some artists opt not to. You know, that's my understanding. Yes? I'm trying to, I'm trying to phrase what I'm thinking, and it's a compliment of how much I like the way you uh, reach into culture or cultures um, and grab on both the serious parts of statement or what you've discovered um, or experienced, 
versus the uh, the contradiction there, and, and, and especially the humor of it. You know, you get something like that one, which is uh, like a big museum painting that's in all seriousness, and then all of a sudden you start to go, oh, wait a second, oh yeah, that's, where did that come from? You know, all of these things that, that uh, our thoughts relate through the vision, I guess. I mean, I, I especially liked when you were going and you got off the canvas into sculptural stuff, and especially the video. You know? <laughs> I mean, that's what I'm trying to say. Especially that connotation and juxtaposition with the humor in it. I like that too. I mean, the, the idea of the sacred and the profane, sort of the butting up of the very serious, the very spiritual against the really sort of serious it's you know it's a crux of everything I do the favorite part I have of this painting is there's this mug that I've had since I've been born that says it's just one damn project after another and it's a beaver and so um, I was just thinking about you know how I've been slaving away for this Anchorage Museum show <laughs> yeah well see I like that and I couldn't even read it or know that origin but, but it being in there is, is uh, perfect yeah, something I tell my students is just, um, and it's something I, I try to do in my own practice, is I tell them to try to incorporate as many different parts of themselves as they can into the work, um, and that'll make the most interesting work. And that, that's just, that's something I try to do in my own practice. Yes? Uh, there are so many things. I wish I had more time to sit and look at your pieces. You can go to the Anchorage Museum show. Occasionally, well, I will. Occasionally <laughs> something will flash on me, like your face there. Um, the one eye is looking back, it looks like in fear, but just to see, make sure of what's behind them. And the eye that's closed uh, does not look oriental. It looks uh, well, non-oriental, and, and also like it has been blinded. Yeah. So that's what I grabbed from that. But let me let me go back to when you said something about you let the piece determine. I've had more than one Alaska Native uh, sculptor say that the, uh, that the they start on a carving and, and it comes out of the stone. And, uh, you know, that that's part of it. The thing that I've been worrying about, and I've, I've been watching uh, humans intently since I was seven. I'm 73 now. And the thing that has worried me is the lack of empathy that mm -hmm. seems to be prevalent in our culture. And that that's the thing that determines a human is being empathic. And then suddenly, as I'm thinking that, sitting here, suddenly I was thinking, Wait a minute, elephants stand around each other when, when there is one that's that's injured or dying. So it's not a, it's not totally human, but the absence of it is what I think is at the core of our separation. Yeah, no, I mean I agree. I mean I, I phrase it as sort of a dehumanization that, that makes that possible to have a lack of empathy. We we've become tribal and I've heard that term used many times recently. When when you when you um, travel around the state, you know, mm -hmm. if you go to villages, how do you present yourself? Like you and Wainwright, or uh, like well, I'm I just curious. Go with a former student, uh -huh. um, that I, I only go where I have connections, and so I'll always be introduced as you know so and so's professor that's visiting and is interested in maybe a culture or a subsistence hunting. Do they want to see your artwork? I mean, or is it more? Occasionally, I'm just curious yeah, the reaction. I mean, uh -huh. it's been such a rewarding and interesting experience getting to travel to parts of the state that not many people get to go to. I mean, it's 
my favorite thing about Alaska is just it's always surprising me. I mean, one of those images where I'm standing there on the beach with all those pieces of glacier, like That's I was cool. up at, at a, um, in Wainwright and um, the, the ocean had been clear the whole time and then the last day all of this ice had washed up on the beach and I didn't even know that happened as it is a thing. And you know, I'll be walking with a friend and you know, beluga whale will jump out next to me. It's just, it's, I thought, I traveled around so much in my life that I really thought I knew what to expect from everywhere. And then Alaska just, it's constantly surprising me. And that's what my favorite part is about it. So I have some other slides of, because um, Rachel was curious about um, American artists. And so I wanted to share with you just a couple of um, some of my favorite artists and pieces. Um, like I said, I, I spent a lot of time uh, growing up in, in New York City, and so there's paintings at the map that always really struck me. This is um, Gustave Moreau's Oedipus and the Sphinx. And, uh, and there's, there's a presence to painting uh, more than other mediums for me. Um, not only is there sort of the historical importance, um, but there's just you know, the time the artist has put in, there's sort of a spiritual presence to me. I mean, art is very spiritual to me. It's sort of like my form of prayer. Um, you know, there was George O'Keefe's there. Um, and then this painting uh, by the it's contemporary painter, Ashley Bickerton. Uh, I saw this painting when I was 17. My art teacher in high school took me to a collector's house and I saw this above the stairs. And I'd never seen anything like it before. It's the artist's ex-wife with these nine-inch fingernails and she's breastfeeding a pig, uh, which in, in Polynesian cultures, uh, the women of the village will breastfeed a piglet if it's a runt uh, to save its life. Uh, and then that's their son with all that candy bar. And it was, um, you know, I talked about the sacred and profane and my interest in that started here when I saw this piece. It effectively changed my entire life. I'd never seen the world be so sacred and so disgusting at the same time. And that and something just clicked, you know, a point of view was shared with me that um, was like un unlike anything that I've ever seen and you know, it'll always uh, be part of who I am. And I think art has that amazing power to communicate something, you know, beyond words, something that can't be captured in words. Um, this is, I love this image, it's uh, from Francis Bacon, that's his reference photo, and then that's the painting, and I just like it as an example of um, how different everyone's worldview is, and how different they can interpret the same things, um, and visually how they might interpret that. Um, this is contemporary American artist Kim Jones, he was a Vietnam War veteran, and he actually had to construct this apparatus with sticks and mud when he was there to hide uh, from the Viet Cong and so this is a performance that he used to do where he would recreate um, it's a little more elaborate than what he actually used in the war but he would walk around the streets of LA uh, in a similar uh, structure um, this is uh, American painter Kinde Wiley Kinde Wiley actually went to my undergrad and grad um, and he's best known for inserting African-American men uh, and women in the place that's traditionally held in painting by um, you know, white nobility, mostly he talks about class and race, and so that's his painting uh, with, uh, I think it's the rapper Ice Cube in, in place of um, one of the old kings of England. Uh, this is Anna Teresa Hernandez's work. Uh, her parents were uh, migrant laborers uh, from Mexico, uh, and uh, so her work is about the Sisyphusian sort of struggle of migrant laborers. So this is her uh, trying to mop the boardwalk futile effort. Um, this is a piece by Walton Ford. He was actually a professor of mine at Yale. Um, he uses animals uh, and the language of those old Audubon illustrations to talk about history and uh, as, as metaphor. 
they're always very historical, taking place in specific time periods and in reference to specific events. Um, Mark Tanzi is another one of my favorites. Just, and he's one that has the sense of humor about his own work. Uh, Lee Bontecu, um, she's known for these really sculptural, crazy paintings. Um, this is Iona Brown's work. She also went to my undergrad at grad. Um, she's interested in how black people are portrayed in Japanese culture, and that's the intersection of her work. <laughs> Wengechi Mutu's a contemporary African artist that um, uses beauty magazine uh, pieces and collages in her work. So very and interesting. Jenny Seville is one of my favorite American painters, sort of that grotesque beauty. Um, Julie Heffernan was also another teacher of mine. Um, and just, she's actually carrying on the tradition of the Dutch masters, because we're in an interesting period of time in art where uh, the postmodern idea is that it's pluralistic, that there are multiple avenues towards truth and they're all equally valid. So you get to see this really wide range of people and they're all borrowing from different histories and continuing in different hi art historical trajectories, but um, they're, they're all equally valid. Uh, this is a painter, uh, Miju, who's from Korea, um, that I went to school with, and uh, it's funny because her work, it might look really alien to us, but if you're from Korea, apparently they're folk images, uh, that's where she's pulling from for a lot of this uh, visual imagery. Uh, Marilyn Minter. Uh, is one of the most well-known contemporary American painters, and I don't think she's touched one of her paintings in decades. She has warehouses full of uh, grad students painting these things for her. And you can <laughs> tell their paintings from you know a centimeter in front of it. Um, but it's like I was referencing about the art world. You know, it's a commodities market in a lot of ways. And that's kind of what her work is about, actually. She draws parallels between art and fashion. Yeah, Dior, yeah. yeah. Um, and then this is one of my main professors and one of the cruelest uh, ideal, Lisa Discavage. And I remember I saw this painting before I ever met her, and it made me nauseous, physically nauseous looking at it. My sister calls it the green butt lady. <laughs> <laughs> but she's one of the world's greatest colorists. Um, and then the last images I have, this is from a contemporary uh, artist, Nikki S. Lee. And, um, and I'll, I'll blow through these. She's in each of these photographs from the series. So that's her in, that, in the center with the pink hair. That's her. She did this series where she infiltrated different cultural groups. She transformed herself and has this photographic evidence of her. And she really lived these lives. She lived with these people. These people became her friends. And she took on these different personas and it manifests visually different depending on what group she's with. Uh, and for months at a time, years, sometimes she would be these different people. That's her. <laughs> um, and uh, this series is another one of those pieces that just really struck me. There's something quite profound about the fact that who we are and everything we've built up as our own identities is so fluid and so superficial, really. Um, but she's able to um, be these different people. So those are some of my favorite artists. <laughs> She told them. She told them that she what she was doing, but then she spends so much time with them that they, it just becomes her life. It's a really profound message, I think. 
Well, well, I really look forward to you, the exhibit coming, and also just to hearing your voice more. You that, I mean, as an artist, to see your work, but your your voice is is really important to hear, and and also about your life. Well, um, oh, sure. Um, one of the things that you talked about was um, your freedom since you've been here, like your freedom of expression more, you're less oppressed, you know, politically correct police are not as oppressive up here apparently, and plus the freedom you find in nature, because mm -hmm. nature is something that, you know, maybe brings back some of your childhood that you spend with and stuff. And I'm just wondering, going forward, um, how do you think those things will factor into your work, or do you know um, with, you know, because of the things that are politically happening, you know, you're being dragged into that world, or maybe the natural world is such a catastrophe too, like do you see that any of that stuff's going to make its way more into your art yeah. world? No, I mean, anything that I'm dealing with as a person finds its way into the work, and mm -hmm. so what concerns me shifts over time, I mean, I think this past year has been hard, just um, things have been kind of stirred up, and uh, um, I don't know, I mean, there's consistencies, I think, and at the end of the day, I think the work is my investigation into what's true, and um, what's true in my life, and what's true about being a human, and, um, you know, I can only hope that the work, by sharing my point of view, um, just, I don't know, make somebody understand something a little bit better. Um, you know, it's like, I know what the work means to me, but I still haven't totally figured out you know, what kind of an impact it has. You never know. I mean, that artist, Ashley Bickerton, with his David Dog Mary piece with the piglet, he'll never know that you know my entire life changed when I saw that piece. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, we still have time if people want to talk, okay? But thank, really, thank you so much.